Hey everyone, this is Dave Broadbeck, um, coming to you just before the start of the winter 2017 term. Uh, the lecture you've downloaded is from, uh, or you're streaming, you could be streaming it, it could be streaming, maybe not downloading, anyway, user technicalities and don't matter that much, is from uh, Psychology 3256, Advanced Univariate Statistics. It's, of course, needs to be called Design and Analysis 1, that uh, we changed the name. Um, so this is the lecture. There's also uh, our YouTube video. So you want to check those out. So you just have to search on YouTube for my name, um, and you'll see a playlist of Psych 3256 for this uh, coming year. Uh, thanks a lot for downloading, and I hope you enjoy it. Uh, the chance of anybody actually enjoying a statistics le lecture, I just think is this was a triumph. small. Thanks. I'm making a note here. Huge success. It's hard to overstate my satisfaction. Okay, so uh, maybe we, we might get this finished up today. We're not in a rush, but we might get it done. It'd be nice if I actually had it plugged in so you could see it on the screen. So let's try that. And let's just see if it shows up there. That would be good. Hey! So, we were talking about this, the idea of type 1 and type 2 sums of squares. The nice thing about these type 2 things is they give you that extra variance, which is what you're interested in. So it's the extra variance accounted for by adding x1 in, given x2, x3. Adding x2 in, given x1, x3. Given, adding x3 in, given x1, x2. So it's unique variance. Uh, some of the people, people that came by today I was drawing some pictures, and one of the ways to look at this is if you got like, you think that container holds all the y variance? That's all of y. So if we add x1 and then x2, and let's say x3, okay? So all this is doing is accounting for unique variance. Just x1 given x2, x3, just x2 given x3, x1. But the thing is, that means thinking, well, why is that any different than, you know? But here's the deal. What if you have a situation like this, where when you, once you add x1 in, when you add x2, actually, some of it actually overlaps with x1. So the thing you care about is just the extra variance accounted for. And that's what these nice type 2 sums of squares do. Okay. They're just a diagnostic tool. They're a diagnostic tool. Questions so far? Okay. So you might ask why you should care. Well, if there's no correlation between the variables, the type 1's equal to type 2's. You know what? You're not going to care a lot about this. It's more that if you were really looking closely at something, you might be looking at these type 1 and type 2 sums of squares. If there is a correlation, the type 1s don't equal the type 2s. That's the important thing. Sort of what I was showing here in my diagram. We'll talk a bit more about that in a couple of slides. But it's something that it does matter because you don't really want them when you're bringing in an extra level of complexity by bringing in an extra variable, it better explain it enough extra variance for it to be worthwhile. 
So what can these things give you? Type 2 sums of squares give the extra variation accounted for by having a variable in the model given the others are already there. It's a conditional thing. Okay, so it just talks about extra variance. Extra variance, nothing else. This can give us something called the coefficient of partial determination, which is just the unique variance that a variable contributes to y, the thing you're trying to predict. It's sort of the opposite of big R squared. Big R squared is called the coefficient of multiple determination. This is the coefficient of partial determination. You may have heard of partial correlations, which are a correlation where you do correlate two variables, then you sort of statistically control for one of the variables by taking the variance that it accounts for and the x thing, the x uh, predictor. How do you get that? Well, I'll tell you in a sec. <laughs> so yeah, this coefficient of partial determination gives us the extra variation accounted for by adding in another variable. Okay? In square, you get a partial correlation, which is actually quite useful. So, again, it's just this extra bit, and it's now as a proportion. For the you three guys who were there this morning over in the TA room, what I was saying is accounting for this percentage of variance. That's exactly what I was doing in my head. I was doing the coefficient of partial determination, which obviously is very difficult. This is just the proportion, this extra bit here, the proportion of extra variance accounted for by bringing a new variable in the model. That's all it is. I'm obviously caring a lot about extra variance that's accounted for, and I'm obviously caring a lot about overlap, about redundant variance. That's this stuff here where we have x1, and then we throw x2 in. Look, it's already explaining some of the x1 variance. Why does that matter? Think about the model. Here's the model. The, the waddle? model, y hat equals b sub 0, b sub 1, x sub 1, plus b sub 2, x sub 2, plus dot, 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 plus b sub b minus 1, x sub b minus 1, plus e. Right? That's, a, that's just a basic model for multiple regression. There's nothing in there at all but two variables being together. Nothing. Is there? Remember now, severance, we got like plus alpha beta, plus alpha gamma, plus beta gamma, plus alpha. There's none of that there. Because these are these coefficients aren't variables, these b's. They're just numbers that you multiply the value of the variable by. There's nothing in that model saying an x1, x2, like we would have with an alpha severance, alpha beta. There's nothing there. There's nothing about shared variance. In fact, there's even a name for this because it's a problem. And the problem is called multicollinearity. Multicollinearity is when you have shared variance between predictor variables in multiple regression. Multicollinearity is when you have shared variance between multiple predictor variables in multiple regression. 
Write that down. It sounds like a really good definition for a final exam. Can you say it again? I can. Yeah. Multicollinearity is when you have shared variance between predictor variables in multiple regression. It is bad. Because there's nothing in the model that says it. Or, one more time. I wonder if I'm even if I'm close to saying the same thing each time. Write it on the board. I could, but you wouldn't be able to read my handwriting. <laughs> so it really wouldn't be worth it. Multicollinearity, which is spelled right here, spelled just like it sounds, is when you have shared variance, or covariance if you want, between predictor variables in multiple regression. Except if it's Thursday. No, that's not, I threw that last part in, that isn't true. It's the same every day. See, now what's going to happen? If you have shared variance, where's it going to go? It's going to go here. Stuff you can't explain. That's not good. You never want that E or the epsilon, whatever the model, to be big. You want it to be small. You want to explain as much variance as you can. Suddenly, we have extra variance we can't explain. That's no good. For we must explain variance. It is what we do. That's really all inferential statistics is, is explaining variance. It really is all it is, pretty much. OK, questions. Do you see why it's bad? Right? Because it's not here. When it's not in the model, the model is like, this is how we are saying the universe works like this. The math then falls out of this. Oh, but you have an extra thing? Well, that screws everything up and makes this error, this thing you can't explain bigger. You don't want big error. You want small error. So you're violating an assumption of the model. Or, 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 or the procedure. It's the model assumption you're violating. It has nothing, it's a model assumption. It has nothing to do, there's, there's no mention of, of, of overlapping variance. This will change the Bs. That's the values of those, what are called beta weights sometimes, or coefficients. I like coefficients better, but a lot of stats software calls them beta weights. So how do we detect multicollinearity? This is a problem, because you can't, drawing these pictures isn't the easiest thing to do, And those are just representations. They aren't really, you can't really draw pictures of variance. Well, the first thing you can do is look at correlations between X variables. Now, a lot of times when you're doing this kind of work with, with, with regression, you've got maybe 20 variables, 30 variables. I think I told you guys about my friend Todd doing this stuff where he was collecting data trying to figure out how many cigarettes people smoke per day using purely behavioral measures, not, not using anything invasive, not using uh, saliva uh, samples. Right. So what he did is he had 22 predictor variables and one predicted variable, which is cigarettes per day. And one of the things he had to do was build a regression model where he could predict cigarettes per day accurately. So it would be this times this, so it'd be some number plus, I don't know, five times the number of years you smoked, which that's not what it was. It's something. Plus some other number times 
Have you tried to quit? Yes or no, zero or one? Things like that. Well, you got 22 variables. Some of them are going to overlap. So what you do is you do a correlation matrix between all of them. And you say, oh, these two variables correlate really highly. One of them we're going to have to throw away because they overlap so Which one do we throw away? Probably the one that doesn't correlate with Y, with the thing we're trying to predict so much. You're never going to get a case that is beautiful like this. This doesn't happen. This is in an idealized world, which we do not live in. If there's a special case where it can happen, and we'll talk about that too. It's, it's exceedingly rare. So you've got to look at a correlation, look at correlations between X variables. It's the first thing to do. That's a lot of variables. You might have 20, 30 variables. And you're going to say, what's too high a, a correlation? I don't know. No one can give you an answer. 1.0 would be pretty high. <laughs> it would know, be like the correlation of height in centimeters and height in inches. You wouldn't need both of those. But what about 0.2? That's actually a lot. But that, that wouldn't be uncommon. 0.3. You know, I think about 0.3, I'd probably start going, huh, we've got to throw one of these in. So you might have to chuck something. Just get rid of it. You take it. It's horrible because you collect these data. Oh, that's useless to me. Variable 70 are dead to me. So you just throw it away. Well, you don't throw it away. You keep it. You always keep data. You just don't put it in the analysis. Okay, here's another assumption. We assume a linear model, which means straight lines. So a straight line, or when we get beyond lines and, and, and surfaces, a, a combination of things added together. That's it's linear. It's linear means by what if it's not linear? What if that is your model in the, in the real world? Y equals lambda sub zero plus lambda, oh, sorry, to the lambda, lambda sub one times x times error. What if that's it? You know what that is? That's an exponential. That's all that is. And there's a lot of things in science that are exponential. Like lots. Like, I don't know, here's an example. If we were to correlate dopamine to receptor binding efficiency and effective dose for 50% of the population for any psychotic drugs, it looks like this. It's exponential. That's not, a, that's not a straight line. So this, I know this looks weird. On the math level, don't worry about that. The point here is that it's not straight. That's not a straight line. Because the exponent here so you might look at that right now and just kind of go, ah! but there is a way to fix this. Just take the logarithm of both sides. And this is what you do. In fact, when you look at a log scale on a graph, a lot of times, they'll have a log scale on the graph, and then it looks like a straight line, which all they've done there is a logarithm transformation. Because once you have log everything, you can then just, they all cancel each other out. And, oh, look, it's just a linear regression. That's crazy. So that's something one could do. This is called an intrinsically linear regression. So an intrinsically linear regression is when you actually have a, a straight, 
you have something that isn't a straight line relationship, but can be easily transformed into one. Okay, so you have a straight line relate. Sorry, uh, a non-straight line relationship that can be easily transformed into one. And you can just take my word that that logarithm thing I did worked. Wow, that's okay. So you might look at something and say, oh, that looks like half of a parabola. Well, that means it's x squared. So just take the square root of both sides. And you might say to yourself, well, I don't know that. Yeah, you might not. But when you see a regular relationship in your data, go to, go to somebody who's mathematically inclined and say, what does that kind of graph does that look like? And they'll look at it and say, oh, that's a, you know, that's a two kind of exponential. That's a parabola, whatever. And they can fix it for you. Or tell you that fix it. Just take the square root, or just take the logarithm, or maybe it looks like a sine curve. It's like, well, just take the arc sine in a straight line. Beautiful. So it's really doable. Okay. And in fact, exponentials are very common in science. We run into them all the time, and we just turn them into straight lines. We just turn them into straight lines by taking logarithms. So it's not a, it's not a scary thing. Now, not everything is intrinsically linear. Some things just aren't linear. There's something you can do to them. So you just have to use a different kind of regression. You just don't fit a straight line anymore. Like if it was some sort of third-degree polynomial, there's no kind of transformation you can do to that turn into a straight line. And that's fine. You just fit a different kind of curve. That's, again, when you go to somebody who's way more mathematically inclined than you are, and you say, what, what does this look like to you? And they'll say, that's oh, a third degree polynomial. OK, first explain to me what that is. No, actually, don't. Can you turn that into a straight line? No, I can't, but I can fit a third degree polynomial curve to it. Good, let's do that. It's the same logic. You're still minimizing residuals, squared residuals. You're just not fitting a straight line anymore if you don't have an intrinsically linear relationship. Okay. So back again to the idea of the additive model, there's no mention of interactions. How, how much time did we spend in ANOVA on interactions? Much time. We spent much time. You probably, you know, you, look, a lot of times there are interactions. You probably could put something in, x1, x2. So x1 times x2. Yeah, it's secret. To do that, though, you actually have to know that the interaction is there. It's a very, it's, it's kind of going ass backwards compared to ANOVA. But you can do this. And this is not, especially if you actually designed an experiment where you had, like, say, two levels of x1, two variables, two levels of x2, you can certainly put in x1, x2. There's nothing wrong with doing that. You typically don't, is all. It's really tough to know what this term should be, x1, x2. Should it be, let's say you have five variables, you, you have all five possible interactions, like x1, x2, x1, x2, x3, x1, x2, x4, x1, x2, x5, x2, x3, x2, you know, blah, blah, blah. Do you do all that? No, you probably don't. So you really have to look at prior data and also your own data, do some EDA, to figure out what you might throw in as an interaction term. You typically wouldn't do this. I'm just telling you about it because it is sometimes done. 
you hardly ever see this. data set, and we have to then predict, sorry, select what our predictors are. What variables are we going to use? What kind of variables? Can you use qualitative data? Or as I like to call it, poorly defined, quantitative data. In other words, let's say hair color. I don't know why you have a regression thing with hair color. Well, let's pretend. And let's pretend there are four colors of hair. So there's red, and there's blonde, and there's brown, and there's black. And I know it varies a lot more than that. I know people dye their hair, and I just don't care. We're going to pretend there are four colors of hair for this little idea. How shall we code the four colors of hair? Could you say one is blonde, and two is red, and three is brown, and four is blue? Well, you could, but does it make any sense? Remember, this is a mathematical thing we're building. Does that mean that black hair is four times the hair of blonde hair? Well, that's weird. They're numbers, right? You're actually, so you can't really do that. So you have to really be careful. There is a way to do this with qualitative data. It's hard. It's okay if it's binary. So if you've got something like, I don't know, let's say one of the things we're trying to determine is how well people do on in intro psych, and one of the variables is are they a psych major? They get a zero if they're not one, and a one if they are. That's easy. Cut it simple. That actually makes sense. They are not a psych major, so they are zero psych majors, so they are one psych major. We can do that. But we couldn't put in, are they a psych major, a sociology major, or a biology major? We couldn't do that because we'd have one, two, three, or zero, one. It wouldn't make any sense. It's hard to do. So if it's binary, it's easy. And remember, if you're doing it binary, it's 0 and 1, not 1 and 2. There actually is a way to do it. It's called dummy coding. And instead now of having one variable called major, we have a variable called psych. Variable, variable called sociology and a variable called biology. And if you're a psych major, this is you. And if you're a sociology major, this is you. And if you're a biology major, that's you. So now suddenly we've had one variable, one degree of freedom lost. Now we've lost three degrees of freedom. You've got to really free. You've got to really think this is working. Don't do this. It's something you very rarely do. Okay? You understand how that works, though? See, you can do it. I just, people, it's not a good idea. It just isn't. It's not wrong. It's just that you're suddenly increasing the number of variables. You want to have as few variables as possible to make a prediction. We suddenly went from, and let's say it was major. There aren't just three majors here. There's probably... Probably like 18 some number like that. One variable, 18 variable? No, you don't. You really don't. You can also look at the Likert scales. We in psychology, not me in particular, but people out there that do that kind of psychology, 
with the scales, think that if they put a number to something, suddenly they can do math on it. And I'm just going to use that with my other students anybody. But if you score 26 on the Dave Broadbeck aggression scale, which is just a series of questions that piss me off, <laughs> is that twice as aggressive as someone who scores a 13? I, I don't know, partially because I just developed that scale right now. Um, but even really well-established ones, we don't know. I don't care for the IQ, it's probably the most normalized it is the most studied psychological trait, it is the most tested psychological trait, one of the most reliable and valid psychological tests. And also, uh, I'm not sure that an IQ of 100 is twice the IQ of 50. In fact, I know it's way more than twice the intelligence. Right? Somebody with an IQ of 50 is in real trouble for most of their life. I'm not saying bad people. Or is the difference between 70 and 100? 70 is you could probably with some assistance, live by yourself. And 100 is the average person. And 130, I know people with IQs of 130 easily. I'm sure there are people in this room that have an IQ of 130. Is that difference? Is that the difference? Part of your phones are in your IQs of 130? Well, really? No, no, no. <laughs> this is that the energy that's People on the other side of the world that have just not... Oh, no, let's, let's not worry about that right now. Let's not worry about the uh, sort of biases and IQ tests. I'm talking about we're in this world here. Yeah, 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 sure. I'm not talking about it. Uh, and the IQ tests get way better than used to. There's still those questions, but they're better than they were 34 years ago. It's a good point, but let's say within Western, within Canada, that's not even at all people who can already speak English and have lived here for at least 10 years. I can keep narrowing it down until it's just me. So you got to watch out for these things. We really have a, we love Likert scales in psychology. And a scale of one to seven, and I don't know that seven, six more, or four, the difference between seven and a six is the same as the difference between a four or five. I just don't know. But boy, do we love these things. We love them. And it's just, it's just a, you've got to be careful, that's all. Um, experimental variables can actually be great. So independent variables, and you got a zero or a one on that. So we actually assign people to groups. So a zero or a one on some independent variable, we're not going to have any multicollinearity there because we put people in different groups and tested them. So like if you have a, think of this, a design like this. Okay. And then, you know, the classic between-subjects design. A subject who's in here, we know their level of A, we know their level of B. That's easy. If they're, number, if they're numerical things, we can even dummy code it. They don't overlap ever. B1 and B2 don't overlap. A1 and A2 do not overlap. So sometimes you, you do, it's the thing is you don't usually do this with experiments. This isn't, it's, it doesn't lend itself to that kind of analysis. People can do it. It's like, oh, Okay, so what we have to do now is build a model. So we have to come out, up with something that we can present in a paper and say, this variable is a combination of the following things. So how do you choose what variables to use? You're not going to use all 22, for example. There used to be an assignment in this course on doing multiple regression, which I 
eventually moved to the end of the term, and eventually the people just went insane. But I would actually give you that cigarette data. 500 records, 23 variables. And just the assignment had, was one sentence, find the best model. Have fun. Thank you for having me. I stopped doing it five years ago, and that's partially because it, it is a lot of work to do. I can tell you Lori Bloomfield did it <laughs> when I taught her. <laughs> I can tell you Dwayne Keogh did it when I taught him. We'll be back next year. Other people. Everybody comes up. The weird thing is, if you do this properly, people would come up with two different models, one that had four variables and one that had seven. Both were defensive, which is exactly what it was in the paper. Like a technical report. It wasn't published, which is great. So, because people were like, let's go look up the article. Doesn't it say this? The technical report. The entire health ministry. Can't find it. It's not online anywhere. It was like Max Sigs, Men Sig, Quick Today. It was like a linear combination of four things. It was beautiful. So this is different from ANOVA. In ANOVA, we're like saying, is there an effect? Here we're saying, the world works like this. It's a linear combination of these. At the deep level, at the math level, it's actually almost exactly the same. But on the sort of macro level, a 10,000 yard stair level, mixing things up there, it's a bit different. So usually start out with a lot of variables. Like a lot of variables. Like I said, 20, 30. Okay. Well, you can do all the possible regressions. Which you can tell SPSS to do, by the way. This is really pretty easy. The problem is, let's say there are, if there's three variables, x1, x2, x3, there are seven models. Without throwing any interactions and crap. There are seven different models. Well, you know what? I could look at all seven. That's something I could do. If there are four variables, there are 15. Well, yeah, 15 I could compare. For 10, there, I believe the number is a zillion. It's a ridiculous. Are we giving this assignment? The students were allotted 200 printed pages for the term, for the course. This was when I was teaching this at U of T, and I the same assignment. I was a grad student, and I said, everybody got 200 pages. And I said, now find the best model. And people were doing, using the all reg procedure, all possible regressions. And actually, they made entire computer systems be able to drone a crash. I get big phone calls to that <laughs> from um, the IT administrators. Hey, Brock back there? Yeah. Right here. Did you have your students try to crash our. No, I told them specifically not to do this. But like five or eight people, or 40 people in the class, oh, let's see what happens if I do it. <laughs> Harvard of the North. Um, so, so you can't do this. You can't, right? It's 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 an okay thing when you got three or four variable models, three or four models uh, variables. That's fine. But when you get to ten and twenty, I think I calculated to do twenty. It would take all the paper ever made by humans for the printouts. It's some crazy thing. So, one of the things you can use to to throw variables at. One of the things you can use to predict, to, use, to choose if the variables are okay, 
you can use residual plots. So take the variable itself and regress it on its own with y. You can find anomalies, like you might find some weird coded number doesn't look right, so you have to remove that record. So this is exploratory, it's a lot of this is exploratory data analysis. Or you might find that you have a curve and not a straight line. Curve, not a straight line. Okay. So nonlinear relationships. Okay, so how would you choose variables? Because again, let's say you've got 20. You think to yourself, Dave, there's got to be some automatic ways to do this. There are. One's called forward selection. What forward selection does is it's automatic, it's an algorithm. We start with the x value that has the highest r squared, which is the biggest overlap with y. And then you add the next variable that gives the next biggest jump in r squared. You can see why doing this up by hand would usually be a hellish nightmare. So you do this with a computer. Keep going until the jump in r squared is not big enough. And what you do is you don't touch the defaults from the computer because it's put there for a reason. Usually it's like, is it a significant amount? Okay. At some point, it just stops. I'll show you something that does this. It calculates this f value because these are all variances. I'm never going to ask you how to do this or worry about this formula. But what it shows you, it calculates something called f star. So f star is mean squared regression for x1 given x2. That's extra variance divided by the total amount of variance. So in other words, it's this, oh, it's gone now. But it's that extra bit. That's all it's calculating, and is it significant? That's, that's, what, we, that's what f star is. That's what f star is. That's all it's doing. It's calculating. And then when f star gets below a certain threshold, it says, nope, done, here's a model. Enjoy. Every stats package that does regression does forward selection. They all have it available as an option. Do you understand how forward selection works? So you've got all the variants in Y, then it takes the one that explains the biggest variance, the X with the biggest overlap, then the next biggest, next biggest, until it's not stopping here. Okay? Then there's backwards elimination. Guess how this works? Exactly the opposite way. It takes all the variables. Takes, so let's say it's a 20 variable data set. It takes all 20, puts them all in the model, and starts removing variables that contribute the least amount of variance. It uses F star again. And it goes, oh, insignificant, goodbye, insignificant, goodbye, insignificant, oh, 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 we take out this, we now take out a significant amount of variance. Stop, here's your model. So it takes one of the smallest f star each time until it starts taking out something that takes a significant amount of variance out and it stops. It says, here's a model for you, determined with backwards elimination. You understand how that one works? It's just the opposite of forward selection. Then your stepwise. You know what's weird? Sometimes if you do forward and you do backward, they don't agree. In fact, almost always. 
Then you do something called stepwise progression, which people think is magic. It combines the two. You go forward, so you put variables in, but every time you put a variable in, you then test by taking out each variable and see what happens. So after you put the second one in, take it out again and just see if it did it screw the, did it make the amount of variance go down too much. So F star for each variable, and then take out ones that don't explain enough. You drop it drops and adds if necessary. You've got you've got an F to enter and an F to exit. Basically, model. There you never screw it up because if you make F with egg to exit bigger than F with enter, it just you put it in, take it out, put it in, take it out, put it in, take it out, it just gets stuck. That's what happened. Another thing that happened with my students who I told them at U of T, who I told specifically not to do that. Uh, the entire mainframe uh, for the uh, Arts and Science building is down. They kept calling me. It's like, it's just as simple as a computer sign. Just, I showed them how to do it. Oh, I wonder what happens if I do this. Maybe they will get the extra points. I don't know what that voice is that I was doing that. It's like, just a generic dumb guy who was the U of T. <laughs> You set the criteria, and actually you don't set them. You just leave it alone and let the computer do it. They're set up with sensible defaults to it. So you got an F to enter. It's got to be greater than or equal to the F to leave. Okay. That sounds pretty good. You know what, though? <laughs> Those automatic methods only look at Fs. All they look at is overlap of variables. They don't look at anything else. All they look at is F to enter or F to leave. F stars. They, don't, they never look at residual plots. So they don't care. They never look and see if something's curvilinear. They never look to see if you've got an, uh, an outlier. They don't care about multicollinearity. They don't look at that and say, oh, well, not, don't use both these variables. They overlap by a little too much for my taste. They care about it in an indirect way because if they overlap too much, it's not a big F, F star. Nonetheless. So they don't worry about anything that we would worry about as humans. So these, these algorithmic methods are fine, and I like them as a starting point. When I've done this, which is not very often, I do all three of those as a starting point, just to see what happens. Here's an approach, and this is an approach that I've taken over the years when I have played with this. And this is the one I would suggest if any of you are going to do this, I would like you to do it this way. Start with a correlation matrix. So every variable correlated with every variable. Just correlate everything. And now, take a subset of those predictor variables that do a good job predicting y, if you're trying to predict, and don't correlate too much with each other. What's too much? I can't answer that question. Though, as a rule, more than 0.2 kind of bugs me. But that's completely arbitrary. So if, let's say next year for your thesis, right? By the way, everybody, you know, there are many of you who do thesis next year, but one of your classmates, Samantha, will be doing it on Friday, so you should go to NW200 at 2.30 and see her and her classmates present their honors thesis. And if you don't, uh, the terrorists win, really. So, uh, <laughs> um, It was about 20 minutes after 9-11 when people said that seriously. And people went, that's crazy. But stop saying that. Mm -hmm. 
But there was a time, about 20 minutes. So you should go see that. But many of you are going to try to do a thesis next year, and that's great. And I want you to, if you can, that's wonderful. And some of you might do regression. And if you do, if you do, get a bunch of variables. Pick a subset of them that overlap, that predict Y, but don't overlap with each other. Don't. So the X1 X2s, for example, X3s, the predictors, don't correlate with each other too much. Okay? If it's a small enough way to do it, I'd look at all the possible regressions. If you've got it down to four or five variables, just do all of them. Okay. So fine, it'll take you a day, and it literally will take you a day. You have to, you have to print these things out because you'd have them on multiple screens. So you've got to print out residual plots everywhere and like sit on the floor of a room looking like a crazy person who believes in conspiracies. And you've got like residual plots everywhere and it's strings connecting them. Like, like, for, like Sunday Night's Homeland episode. It's really like the big reveal of every episode of Homeland, every series of Homeland. If all three agree, you probably have something. All three hardly agree. <laughs> if they do, you probably have Okay. Check for outliers on residual plots. Check for curves on residual plots. Or let's say, you know, if you have a residual plot where, so there's uh, the X and there's residuals, and the pattern looks like this, like a cone or something. So as X gets bigger, E gets bigger, that's a problem. There's supposed to be no relationship between X uh, and the residual. The X and residual. Then, you know what? You go away from it for a week and you do the whole thing again. Because <laughs> a lot of times, because you're dealing with so much data, you're missing stuff. And you're dealing with so many plots, you're missing things. So you've got to put it away and come back to it. You want a model that doesn't overpredict any more than it underpredicts. And that's a hard thing to know. Is it biased in some way? Well, one of the, way, one of the things you can look at a useful statistic that I don't think people look at enough is something called C at P. Okay? And regression, regression will do this. It will look at this for you. A regression procedure will look at this. And you want it to have, if that, it's called, or it's called mallow CP sometime. And what you want, the expected value of CP equals P. P is the number of parameters in the model, number of predictors plus one. So if you've got a four-variable model, what's C at P then? If, it's, if you have an unbiased model, it's five. Four predictors is P minus one, five, okay? So you're gonna look at things like what the R squared is. You're gonna look at things like residual plots, but you're also gonna look at measures like CP which can be very useful. Okay. Any questions on that? Right. Now, <laughs> I'm going to tell you something. And I'm going to stop the recording. No, no. Obfuscate my satisfaction Aperture science We do what we must 
because we can. For the good of all of us, except the ones who are dead. But there's no sense crying over every mistake. You just keep on trying till you run out of cake. And the science gets done, and you make a neat con for the people who are still alive. or whatever podcatcher you're using, just search for Dr. Dave Broadbeck's Psychology Lectures at Algoma University, which is the most ungainly title ever. Uh, these are released under a uh, um, Creative Commons copyright share like 3.0 Canada. Uh, you can't use these for commercial purposes. Um, you feel free to share them uh, and feel free to mash them up any way you want, but if you do that, that means I get to do the same thing with your stuff. Sort of like the GAU license. Um, I hope you learned something. But if you didn't, I, unless you're one of my students, I really don't care. Um, the music, by the way, for each uh, song, for each uh, uh, episode, <laughs> lecture, uh, is uh, available. They're all podcast, uh, like Podsafe music. So if you want to uh, find out about the bands, there's links on my website at people.aoc.ca slash broadback. Uh, if those links don't work, just contact me and I'll find, uh, I'll find out. Um, often I put links uh, actually in the... Uh, if you want to call them show notes or blog posts. So, uh, you know, buy these people's music. They're, they're making the stuff available out there. Uh, thanks, everybody. We'll see you next time.